0: and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash acast and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash acast. Hello, and welcome to Let's Talk, the Jewish Chronicle podcast, sponsored by the Athena Advisors. I'm Jake wallace simons editor of the Jewish Chronicle, and in each episode I'll be joined by a special guest to reflect, debate, and have a bit of a schmooze. This week I'm delighted to welcome the journalist, author, and Jewish Chronicle columnist Melanie Phillips, whose Substack is available at melaniephillips.substack.com. She's going to talk about her journey from the left to the right in politics, Judaism, and Israel. Melanie, welcome, and let's talk. Thank you. So if you start... At the beginning, tell me, how Jewish was your childhood and when did Israel first appear in your in your life?
1: Well, I had a fairly typical of the time uh, Jewish childhood. That's a child brought up in the 50s and 60s. My parents, uh, both born in Britain, um, belonged to a United Synagogue uh, shul. Uh, we were kosher, but not Shomer Shabbat, uh, three times a year Jews. And as far as Israel was concerned... Um, My family approved of it and was quite proud of it, but it was always for other Jews uh, who were less fortunate than us because we lived in the Golden Medina and it wasn't really for us.
0: Where were your parents' families from?
1: My mother's grandparents were from what is now Belarus, but her parents were born in London. My father's parents were born in Poland and came to Britain at around the turn of the century. Uh, so it was a kind of step change in terms of generations and assimilation and so on and so forth.
0: And was the Phillips name? Did it oh, used to be no. something very very <laughs> exotic sounding?
1: Yeah, it was some Polish name. And by family mythology, and who knows whether this is true, my paternal grandfather arrived at the port of London with an unpronounceable Polish name. And they said, right, Phillips. <laughs>
0: Uh
1: Who knows? But that's, yeah. uh, you know, it certainly wasn't Philips um, in the shuttles of Poland.
0: Yeah. Uh, and so you're growing up in this sort of in Jewish but quite English-Jewish environment.
1: Yes, and very un unreligious. My parents were both, I would say, believers, but in a very kind of basic kind of way. My father, let alone my mother, really didn't have much Jewish education at all. He was brought up by his father to intone what he had to intone. Hmm. He did it without meaning, without understanding the meaning. He just did it because it was how it was always done. So I was brought up with very little Jewish education, and the other point about—I mean, I went to Heder, but that was, you know, that was it. And I didn't go to Jewish schools. And the other point about the Israel uh, dimension to our lives, uh, which may strike you as a little strange, is that my parents never flew anywhere, and I grew up with a flying phobia too. Oh. And I didn't really fly until I think I was in my forties really um or possibly my 30s i can't quite remember what was
0: the first flight that you took <clears throat> well what was actually like? the
1: first flight was when my husband joshua when we were just i think newly married decided he would crack my phobia and we flew from aberdeen to to some scottish island it took 20 minutes right and i nearly died of fright really? and it Far from curing me of my phobia, it actually accentuated it. Scroll forward, our kids get to, you know, teenage and they want to go to America and do, you know, the, the drive up the West Coast. And I thought, right, I've just got to bite this bullet. Anyway, I went. It was awful. And then I kind of took myself in hand and I did various things. I wouldn't go to what was then a very well-regarded flying phobia clinic at, I think, Guy's Hospital in case they might persuade me it was safe. <laughs> um, but I did other stuff, and I at that time, British Airways was very good. You would announce at the door of the plane, I'm frightened of flying! I'm a flying phobic! And they would say, right, right! And they would run around, and they really looked after you, and they would always have a drill. They always had the same drill. They would take you into the cockpit. I was just amazed. I mean, I couldn't believe it. They weren't looking where they were going, the pilots. They were looking backwards, and they had their feet on the console. dreadful. And also, you know, the windows of the cockpit, they are, you know, like circular windows. And the sense of being out of not just even in space, but with nothing Mm. beyond me was much accentuated. Anyway, long How story short. You? <laughs> well, long story short, I was invited to give a lecture tour in Australia. And I thought, well, if that doesn't cure me, nothing will. And it did. It did. It was much better after that. And you know, I have accustomed myself. Well, and now I, you know, I go back and forward a very great deal between Israel and and, uh, and and and
0: yeah, yeah. And we'll come to that bit. So your your parents never took you to Israel. They didn't take you anywhere because or overseas uh, apart from by boat somewhere. I suppose yeah, yeah. Boat across the channel. That was yeah. it. That was yeah, the yeah. extent of the adventure. And what was your? I mean. The, the the texture of your childhood, were there lots of books around and music or was it very mathematical or was it very no, practical? No, my parents were
1: very, very uneducated. Uh, my father uh, had left school when he was about I don't know, 13 or 14. He sold women's dresses from a van. My mother uh, was slightly better educated. I think she had trained as a dress designer. She was psychologically very frail. She had a nervous breakdown in her teenage, never really recovered. And she ran a shop show selling children's clothes. Um, she was a reader. She was um, very keen on Anthony Trollope and historical novels and stuff like that. Uh, my father didn't read. There weren't many books in the house. Um, they weren't readers. I mean, my, my mother was a reader, but not like, mm. you know, not like we think of readers today. Yeah. yeah, not at all.
0: But you, you were, I imagine.
1: Uh, Yes, I was an only child and I read assiduously um, because I lived entirely in my mind. I had no siblings to play with. I was very shy. I was always kind of on the fringe of the friendship groups, wanting to join in, never quite understanding why I wasn't uh, the most popular girl in in the group. And I was left to my own devices. Very few close friends, one or two. That was it. And I read. I read throughout my childhood.
0: So Israel then comes into your life when?
1: It first came into my life in 1982, and I'd never been there and never wanted to be there. I didn't really have much interest in it, I have to say. But in 1982, the Lebanon War happened. I was an editorial writer, a leader writer at The Guardian, just as a matter of simple justice and perplexity. I observed that the war in Lebanon which I thought was probably ill-advised by Israel. But nevertheless, I understood it was a defensive war because it was to root out the Palestinian Liberation Organization, which was encamped in southern Lebanon. And nevertheless, it was presented as a war of aggression. And that was the first time I heard the Israelis being described as Nazis. I thought, what the hell? And out the woodwork came not just anti-Israelism, but anti-Semitism. You people, you people. And I mean, I just couldn't believe it. To me, anti-Semitism was, you know, always there, but it was confined to the fringes throughout my childhood. You know, there'd, there'd been a few nutters who had done this, and we we, we knew it was always it was never going to go away, but it was socially completely unacceptable. Suddenly this came out of the woodwork, and I observed that The Guardian had a double standard. Uh, Assad the Father had uh killed or caused to be killed something between ten and 40,000 of his political opponents over the course of I had, you know, a couple of weeks. And uh, this was, you know, a news story, but no big deal. Whereas every time any Palestinians got killed in Lebanon as well as the Israelis, it was a front page splash and there was a furious editorial, There were foaming op-eds. And so I said to my colleagues in the editorial room one day, in all innocence, we seem to have a double standard. And they said, well, of course we do. We in the West are brought up to respect human life. In the developing world, they don't have that concept at all. Consequently, we cannot judge the developing world by our standards. And I say, what on earth are you telling me? That if one is born into the developing world, one doesn't have the same rights to life and liberty that we do? Isn't that racism? And they say, why are you so upset? We do you the great honour and I become you instantly. I thought I was we but I became you, we do you the great honour of assuming that you have the same moral principles as we do. Indeed, you tell us that your principles are higher. And at that point, I realised that um, something terrible had happened to Britain, to Britain's most liberal elites, the people with whom I thought I had been marching behind the same banner of opposition to abuses of power, banners for truth and justice and all that stuff. I realised they were on the other side. So, I wrote a play about this, um, about the conflicting attitudes of British Jews to Judaism, to their Jewish identity in Britain, and to Israel. And it was produced at a fringe theatre, uh, and people from The Guardian came along, and I put into the play what they had said to me, because uh, there are other stuff, there's other was stuff the too. Called? It was called Traitors. And I put in the play what they had said to me of, on this kind of issue, and um, they came along and saw it watched it, and they said, what kind of people would have said this kind of thing to you? And anyway, uh, then it all sort of died away, and I went back to, you know, writing what I was writing about at the Guardian which was basically British social policy I was I became the news editor and then I became a columnist
0: so if, if we just pause it there so 1982 so at that point Israel has gone from being the darling of the left yeah. now that the left has fallen out of love yes. with Israel and it's yes. become the enemy the Cold War has has, has has caused that to happen but you are on the left yes. at this point point, yeah. and you have this so was this run-in with your Guardian colleagues in 1982 the first crack yes. in the facade of your of yes. of your leftist politics yes. that led to the eventual decline into or, yes. and, and move into the right.
1: Yes, first of all, they never looked at me in the same way again. I was you. Whatever I said, I was going to be on the other side. And I hadn't really internalized the Israel thing. It was still somewhere else. I just thought it was unjust and unfair, and it had anti-Semitism written all over it. Um, and it made me believe. It made me realize that the people i had assumed were on the same side as me and who i could rely on as being the exemplars of conscience and you know being a good person were on the other side and so from that point i was very wary of what they were saying and i processed what they everything they thought through a kind of prism of skepticism uh, it didn't start then. It actually started much earlier than that, but but in a much more minor way. I have to say, I never thought of myself as being on the left. I thought of myself as being a liberal in the old-fashioned traditional sense. But the mistake I made was to assume that we were all liberals, uh, including people on the left. Um, and indeed, they, everyone called themselves the liberal left. Mm-hmm. And at that point in 1982, I realized there was a difference. Um, so I became more wary. But Israel still was kind of not really my thing. And I have to say, you know, the whole Oslo thing just like passed me by, really. Mm. Um, It wasn't my thing at all.
0: I think a, a lot of Jewish people in Britain can relate to that. I think that for a lot of people, because there's so much hatred of Israel on the left, they almost are naturally set to drift into the right because they can't abide that and that informs their political identities in some way
1: yes well uh it was a kind of cultural watershed you know i mean i know this mindset from the inside because i was part of it this idea that anyone who opposed that way of thinking whatever it was on the on, on the left by definition anyone who opposed it was the right and the right wasn't just wrong it was evil they were people who were without conscience, they were rapacious, they were greedy, they were uh, uncompassionate, they were everything bad. Yeah, yeah. And I thought that, and I suddenly realized I'd become one of them. And I suddenly realized this was complete nonsense. And not just nonsense, but sinister and appalling. But this was a process because it's like your family. You know, you wake up one day and you think, and you find out suddenly, you know, your family has been abusing you. And for psychological reasons, you know, you spent the last 35 years not realising you've been ab- abused. So what happens when you finally realise you've been abused? You can't be with them anymore. You write a play. You write a play. You But you, you can't be with them, but you can't leave them. And it took me a long time to leave them, a long time.
0: So uh, So from 82 until... How long? What? When did you finally break free and, and leave the family of the left as well?
1: Well, first of all, I was going to name ninety three. I think it's quite right. The Guardian bought the Observer. By that time, I was I was I'd lost all my friends at the Guardian. I was in, in internal exile. Issue after issue after issue, I'd broken with them, and as far as they were concerned, I had gone over to the dark side. And you know, it was a very difficult, very very difficult experience. But it was my family. I couldn't leave it. Where was I going to go? To the right-wing press? I couldn't do that. Anyway, the Guardian bought the Observer, and the Observer was a true liberal paper. And I thought, well, maybe it'll be better. I put some distance, and I was wrong. I took a, it took a year for the Observer to be Guardianified, and I stuck it out for three years. They, were, I got, we got to the point where they were, there was a, there were colleagues denouncing me in the paper, and at that point, I thought this is absurd. I left. I went to the Sunday Times. That was like a kind of convalescent home. But it was for various reasons. I I didn't quite get on with it. And I eventually ended up much against my better judgment at the Daily Mail, Spawn of the Devil. And when is this? Can't quite remember. Late 90s, very late 90s. Mm. Anyway, uh, I spent 12 years at the Daily Mail. Uh, they fired me after 12 years. Allegedly, I never got to the bottom of it, but my colleagues were all very shocked by this because out out of the blue, uh, there was never any sign that there was any problem with uh, my writing for them. Although I had been constrained in what I was writing, I was forbidden in terms to write about the Middle East, to right. write about Israel, because I was, quote, partisan. But anyway, apart from that, there was no problem. And apparently my crime was to go on BBC Question Time until an aghast audience that Iran was a single greatest threat to the West and needed to be neutralized, and for that I got fired.
0: Right. So let's just go through that that period with respect to Israel. So the '90s, you're at the Daily Mail. That's uh, ish. Yeah. And during the '90s, we have the Oslo Accords, the yeah. collapse of the Oslo Accords. Yes. We have the Intifadas. <laughs> yes. And you're told not to write about oh, yes. the Middle East. Oh yeah. Oh
1: yeah. Yeah. No, no. I was a British social policy writer, and that was that was it. Um, and I you know I have to confess I wasn't following it I wasn't following it it was like not my thing and I'm not writing about it and I'd never been to Israel
0: I don't want to go there but it was what had ejected you or be- begun your ejection yeah. out of the left
1: yeah but and I you didn't landed want...
0: on the right and it and it still was off well, out of the picture
1: I, yeah but I I didn't really put it together like that I just I thought it was all sort of anti-jew that I had fallen foul of and um, the anti-jew was what was being expressed as anti-Israel? So, you know, what I was experiencing in my mind was anti-Jew, because I, I didn't speak or write about Israel. I mean, I, it, it wasn't it wasn't my thing, so it didn't come up. Israel didn't come up. Until the year 2000. 2000 was, was was critical. Okay. The second Intifada. Right. By this time, in the year 2000, that was the first time I went to Israel. My daughter, our daughter, uh, decided to uh, spend her gap year between school and university at a SEM, a female yeshiva, in Jerusalem. Two months later, the Intifada broke out. And we as a family went to see her at the end of that year.
0: Very, very frequently. Yes, was suicide bombs on buses. Yes, yes. All that.
1: I was at the Daily Mail. Uh, out of the woodwork again came what I had seen in 1982, but this time in a major way. Once again came rampant anti-Semitism, but this time it was it was so much worse than it had been in 1982. It was much more overt. And, and basically, uh, I I mean, I then spoke about what was happening. I spoke in public, I've forgotten where, maybe on the BBC, I can't remember. And I said, Well, you know, why is everyone behaving like this? Israelis are being blown to bits in pizza parlors, and everyone's going on as if they are they're fascists. What is this? And the world fell in on me. Absolutely fell in on me. I was made to understand, in terms, to my face and what I was from what I was reading, that British Jews had a choice. Either you could denounce Israel, in which case you were fine, or if you supported Israel, you were no longer entitled to be British. And this was astonishing. And in 2001, I think it was, I got a question time, a seminal question for me, a seminal question time in Bristol with a an audience of extremely well-heeled, well-educated middle-class people, literally with bared teeth spitting at me because I said, what is this? And I was famously accused on the show by Will Self, himself the son of at least one Jewish parent, of dual loyalty. And I looked at the audience and they were all going, yeah, dual, yeah. And I thought, it was like a a door slammed in my head. I thought, that's it, it's over. It's over. We have been living in a fool's paradise for 50 years. And much of the Jewish community at that time said the same thing. Exactly the same thing. Uh, because everyone was in a state of shock what was going on. And then the Iraq war happened, and I just listened and watched as people said to me directly in my presence, I was reading it, uh, this is a conspiracy between Jerusalem and Washington, D.C., to subvert the security of the world in Israel's interests. And I knew by this time I was paying attention. I knew that the Israeli government was saying to America, for goodness sake, it's not Iraq that's a problem. It's Iran. And I was being told, literally, I remember some ex-army officer who was much in demand for the quality of his stellar geopolitical analysis in the public prints. He said to me, oh, uh, George Bush has Ariel Sharon's hand up his back. And I said, really? I thought Iran was the major issue for Israel. And this guy said, really? Oh, it's a new one on me. Ho, ho, ho. So this changed my entire life. I just thought I can't live here anymore.
0: And the, the people who said to you, either you oppose Israel or you're not British, mm. was that that was how, they, how you said they phrased it? Who were these people? The upper middle class. Were they colleagues? Were they people at the Daily Mail editors or no, friends or the, social?
1: Not at the Daily Mail. No, they didn't say that. I remember this being said at a debate hosted by The Economist uh, where the proposition was, or not proposition, but you know, the, the argument was, in terms, the British Jews have a choice now. Choose either to denounce Israel, or you are no longer to be considered properly British. And the audience went, hmm, yeah. I mean, that was the point. It wasn't just a few rogue people saying
0: it. And that wouldn't happen now, would it, in, in such overt terms here in Britain?
1: I think the debate has moved on. It's not a question of dual loyalty anymore. It's, it's it's in a way much worse than that. It's uh, you know if if you support Israel, then you are a demon along with the demon Israel. I mean that's 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 it. You're not of question not being British. You are just you know not worthy of being a human being.
0: But we see in politics. I mean, in the Tory Party, yeah. there's a lot of support for Israel, yeah. and, and indeed even in Keir Starmer's Labour Party, at the last Labour conference, uh, the Labour Friends of Israel event was very well attended and energised. Uh, in a way that obviously it wasn't during the Corbyn years. Uh, I mean, do you not think it's more complicated than, than that? That there's that there's more support than you're allowing.
1: It's gone very much underground. The Corbyn thing has um, re-delegitimized anti-Israelism in many respects. So certainly the Starmer Labour Party, I mean, Starmer has been very ruthless and very effective in suppressing it. But you don't have to look very far to see these views within his own party still, and more broadly on the, on the left. And the Jewish community has fallen for it in Britain, fallen for it completely. And now it's safe to go back to being, being Labour. Really? Really? I think they are making a terrible mistake. The Conservative part is very interesting. Uh, I can't remember a time when there were so many uh, Conservative members of Parliament who were so pro-Israel. That is absolutely correct. But... I mean, who cares about the Conservative Party? I mean, they're probably going down in flames (laughs) anyway. But I mean, the the people who are the avatars of our culture, who actually make the cultural weather, I would suggest, are never the Conservative Party. They are the BBC. They are the mainstream media. The mainstream media, even those papers which editorially are quite friendly uh, and quite fair and balanced in their editorials, their news coverage is appalling. They simply, I think, mainly out of ignorance, but also because, you know, they have to have the story that everyone else is having. They just put into their papers, very often, agency copy, uh, which is then bylined with their own reporter. Agency copy, which very often is written by um, Palestinian supporters uh, from the Middle East, some of whom, if not all of them, uh, have to write this uh, because otherwise they'll be killed. You know, there's a whole number of reasons why the news coverage is so completely one-sided. In my view, the Jewish community in Britain does not make the case either. It is very, very lacklustre. Okay, you know, there's a lot of support for Israel, sort of rah-rah. But when did you ever hear a leading member of the Jewish establishment Say everything that Israel does is legal. There is no such thing as the illegal occupation. The Foreign Office in this country is telling a murderous lie. When did you ever hear that? They will never say it, probably because they don't actually think it themselves. They 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 they, they swallowed it. Uh, You say it's complicated. It is complicated. You know, it operates on, on many levels, and you know, among ordinary people which I differentiate from people who are educated upper middle class, who are not ordinary at all. Ordinary people really don't have a problem with Israel. The lower down the social and educational scale you go, the more sensible and grounded and decent they are. Um, their basic view is, well, we don't know about Israel, but they seem to be sort of people like us surrounded by raving lunatics and want to wipe them out. Well, yeah, that's, that's really about it. That's all you really need to know. <laughs> and as soon as you start getting in with education you get all this terrible stuff about, you know, colonialism and oppression and illegal occupation and, and all the rest of it.
0: Do you know, I, um...
1: Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey.
0: uh, a fairly liberal broadcaster in Britain, who said to me, Soto Voce, he said, you know, the older I get, the more I agree with Manly Phillips. Do you find that a lot?
1: Well, yes, I'm I'm, I'm glad he said it's Soto Voce, because he's you know, at the end of his <laughs> career, quite frankly.
0: And now a quick word about our sponsor, the Athena Advisors. They are a global consulting firm driven by a belief in social justice, helping charities and NGOs to repair the world through excellence in fundraising. Board of Trustees, executive teams, and philanthropists turn to the Athena Advisors to help them develop their capabilities, systems, and skills for more effective fundraising. With hubs in London and Washington, and a diverse team of professionals on four continents, they help organizations ramp up their impact and reach. To find out more about how the Athena Advisors drive organizational performance for good, visit (laughs) theathenaadvisors.com. So you you moved to Israel, didn't you? Yeah. You now live in Israel. Tell me about that period and what happened. And how how strange
1: is this? So, you know, all this, all this great change in my view of myself as a British Jew was taking place 2000, 2001, 2002, that kind of area. And I said to Joshua, my husband, we can't live here anymore. Uh, he didn't have quite the same view. Uh, he didn't come up against what I'm describing in the same way for various reasons. But, you know... He's listening and he's observing and he's also concerned at the time. Um, but my mother was alive, she was extremely unwell, and she died in two thousand and four. And in two thousand and five we bought a place in Jerusalem. And at that time our daughter had moved out to Jerusalem and was, you know, living there quite permanently. And we have a son who was very infirmly remaining in Britain. Uh, to begin with, uh, we used our place in Israel as a kind of holiday home to see our daughter and, you know, just have a nice time. And, and then I gradually, I, I I just couldn't stand coming back. I just didn't feel comfortable. I felt I was here on sufferance. Now, look, this is not everyone's experience.
0: Had you loved Israel from when you first went there? No, I
1: hated it. I hated it. I thought it was crazy. I thought it was just awful. I thought it was, I mean, I, I, it was just Jerusalem I saw. and I thought it was, it was so religious and it was so introverted and it was so tense and everyone was basically crazy.
0: But fast forward to, to, to now and you're, you've got your I apartment there and you're thinking of moving there <laughs> to somewhere that you didn't feel a bond with.
1: Well, I, I, I changed in that period, in, in, in that intervening period.
0: What changed you?
1: I, a lot of things changed. Um, I began to realise how, first of all, how little I knew about the history of the Jewish people, how little I knew about Judaism, how little I knew about the religion, and how I had made judgments on the basis of fantastic ignorance and intolerance. And I met a number of people through a number of different routes over these years. And I started to become educated in what it is to be a Jew. And you know, my reaction is not the reaction of everybody at all.
0: And what what is it to be a Jew?
1: To be different. To be different, to understand that unless you accept the difference, then you are eroding one of the basic principles of Judaism. That's the first thing. The second thing was to understand that Judaism is a kind of, as I like to think of it, a kind of three-legged stool composed of the people, the religion, and the land. And although I kind of knew that while I was growing up, I didn't really understand that these things were all connected If you are a Jew who never wants to go and be in Israel at all, you think it stinks, you're still a Jew. If you're a Jew who doesn't observe any of the commandments, you're still a Jew. But if you knock away any of those legs, then the thing collapses. And the attack on Israel was not just an attack on Israel's government. It was an attack on the unique right of the Jewish people to that land. And if you attack that right of the Jewish people to that land, then you're attacking not just Israel, you're attacking Judaism. And when I kind of put all that together, and as I say, I had, you know, I become, I'd begun to become educated into Judaism itself, and I'd become much more sympathetic to religious people and ultra-religious people. Um, and my whole attitude then my whole framework of my, of my thinking changed. And so I began to see Israel quite differently.
0: And you began to like it.
1: I, I, I fell in love with it. I fell in love with the romance of it, the romance of Jerusalem. It's, it, is, it is intoxicating. You know, you go and look at the excavations around the Western Wall and you go, oh, my goodness, this is where it is this is where it was and this is where I am now and the romance of the of the whole place you go into the desert you go into the galil if you're that way inclined it it really gets to you and the people that you meet the people living there i have found in jerusalem are extraordinary quite extraordinary you you find some amazingly interesting people and people the thing that that really has, I find, so life-affirming is that the place is life-affirming. This is a place which is teeming with children. It is, I think, one of the very few places in the world where the birth rate is considerably over-replacement rate, not just because of the ultra-Orthodox. Indeed, their birth rate has come down, you'll be pleased to know, from an average of 12 children per woman to mere eight per woman. Shocking but the average birth rate is between 3 and 4 and you know the chilonim the secular people in north tel aviv they're all having 3 and 4 children and they all basically think it's what you know said it's, they their two d- it's, their, it's <laughs> cynicism <laughs> they think it's their duty and you get this sense which is absolutely life affirming of everybody pulling together in the last instance i find it astonishing that you know the the one of the catchphrases is hakol ye, ye beseder And you think, what? Everything's going to be okay? What, here, with 150,000 Hezbollah missiles pointing at us uh, from uh, Lebanon, which can wipe us all out, with missiles coming over uh, from Gaza every five seconds, down the road from me, what, three or four miles down the road from me, rockets were fired in the territories, not just in Gaza, and Hakol Yeybes said, "Everything's going to be fine," and it's this tremendous sense of optimism that everybody knows ultimately what they are, who they are, what they're there for. They're all pulling together. Having said that, the place is completely crazy. I mean, I never, i never, I couldn't, couldn't imagine a more, a more insane place. First of all, the politics are beyond ridiculous and insane and stupid and awful, and then the people themselves. You know, there's no sense of personal space. You know, in in Britain, in Britain, if somebody treads heavily on your foot, you say, oh, I'm so sorry. In Israel, you know, they are literally, you know, elbows in your ribs all the time. And for a Brit like me, this is very disconcerting. And I occasionally say, you know, get out of my space. And they go, ma? (laughs) So I can't say I feel comfortable. On the contrary, it's foreign to me. But my goodness me, and it's got a downside. And the downside gets people and they can't live there. I fully sympathize and understand that. But the upside is that ultimately, I mean, if if, if t- people in Tel Aviv knew that I was there and they knew they knew about me and what I was writing, I think I'd probably get quite a hard time. You have to bear that in mind. But basically, no one, is going to make me feel there, that I'm there on sufferance, that I'm there on my knees, that I'm there on a conditional basis. No one. It's mine. It's ours. And the sense of being a whole Jew, the sense of completeness, for me, not for anybody else, just for me, has been very life-affirming indeed.
0: And I just wanted to rewind. There's something that you mentioned earlier, which I thought I wanted just to highlight. When you talked about the Jewish people's unique right to that land. That's the sort of phrase mm. that people don't often say
1: Absolutely outside not.
0: of Israel, certainly not in the Jewish community. They say here. it much in Israel either. Um, will you just explore it a bit, what you mean by it?
1: The Jewish people are the only people for whom Israel was ever their national kingdom. That's what I mean. It's not that they weren't people living there before. If you read the Torah, you see that the Jews conquered it. Okay. So there were the Canaanites and the Jebusites and the Gilgalites and all the other ites. but none of them is alive today. None of them is none of them has a, has a has a has a set of descendants. So the Jewish people are the only extant indigenous people of the land. Now, many people say, "Well, so what? Uh, that doesn't give you an entitlement." Well, I think it does. Actually, I think it does because the Jewish people were the only people who were was their national kingdom. It was an intrinsic part of their identity and their religion and their their existence as Jewish people. We know that they were exiled, and we know that they never lost their connection with the land. They retained a presence in the land. They were always trying to come back to the land. The land was then occupied by serried waves of, of invaders. We get to the, uh, the turn of the 20th century, and the Middle East post-First uh, World War is carved up, So people say, well, in that case, you know, uh, what was done in Palestine was appalling, a colonialist, you know, French and the the great powers of France and England. OK, in that case, every country, every state in the Middle East, apart from, I think, Egypt, is illegitimate, every state, because it was all part of the post-First World War colonial uh, settlement. OK, so you get to, you know, the mandate for Palestine And again, many people in Britain have no idea about it. They think think the Balfour Declaration, you know, a bunch of of Edwardian nobles, noble people in government got together and because they were sort of bonkers Christians, they all passed the Balfour Declaration and, 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 and then Israel happened. Well, no, the world community decided that as of right, the Jews alone had the right to resettle their land. And it was, you know, very explicit. Everybody should have civic and religious rights, everybody, and they do, but only the Jews should have poli- political rights because there was a belief that, you know, if it was your your land, then, it, then you are the only people for whom it is your land. What then happened, again, is airbrushed out of much history. But what then happened was, okay, so the majority of people living in the land at that time were Arab, but they were mainly nomadic. There was no Palestinian identity. The word Palestinian was applied to Jews. Palestine Post, Palestine National Fund and all the rest of it. uh, The Palestinians were the Jews. The Arabs identified as Arabs until 1963 or 64 when Yasser Arafat cooked up Palestinian national identity with the Soviet Union, and the rest is history. And meanwhile, many of the...
0: Nationalism arose in the 30s.
1: Well, hang on. But many of the people who um, we are led to believe... Uh, were the indigenous people of the land because they were there in the 20s and the 30s. Many of those people came in on the backs of the returning Jews. And many of those people from Arab countries around Palestine, as it then was, were illegal immigrants. Um, And if you look at the encyclopedias of the time in the 20s and the early 30s, I mean, there there were dozens and dozens of national identities in Palestine at that time. It was an absolute melting pot. So this idea, you know, that the Palestinians have been there since time immemorial is a lie. And, and so many people say, well, who cares? They think now that they are what they are, and that's therefore what they are. Well, I'm sorry, I do not believe... That if I say you know today I'm a Palestinian, I become entitled to claim land as a Palestinian. it doesn't work like that
0: one one question that's occurring to me I mean I'm you know we, we could talk about this forever um but just on, on a broader level, there'll be a lot of people who who listen to this podcast who won't agree for various no, reasons really? do you uh, feel that there are people who could reasonably disagree yeah I've, have a different feeling about history, and about belonging and about Palestinian rights, and are not anti-Semitic, are not, you know, they're within the Overton window, you might disagree with them, but but their differences are reasonably held to your own? Or do you feel that the the unique right point leaves no room for anybody to disagree reasonably?
1: Look, there are plenty of Israelis who think that uh, the Palestinian Arabs have an equal right, if not a greater right. They're all, you know, Jews always disagreed leave apart from non-Jews. Jews Jews have always discreet about this and about everything else. And as far as the non-Jewish world is concerned, um, what concerns me is that many of those views that are held are held, uh, in my view, for two reasons. First of all, ignorance. I don't mean that pejoratively. I simply mean, you know, people just don't know the history. I didn't know. I didn't know the history. So ignorance on the one hand. On the other hand, ideology that anything that is associated with the West is basically a colonialist colonialist enterprise. Now, everyone's entitled to their point of view. I think that point of view is not only wrong, but damagingly and dangerously wrong, and has actively encouraged, basically, the murder of innocence. Uh, So I can't approve of it. I mean, people are entitled to whatever view they want. Um, I don't think people are entitled to hate Jews as Jews. Uh, do I think that any criticism of um, Israel, that all criticism of Israel is anti-Semitic? Certainly not. Certainly not. However, be- be- because I do believe that the right of the Jews to their own land is part of Judaism, then if you don't believe that the Jews alone have no right to their own land, then I think that is actually, you know, you are you are you are you are parroting. A version of anti-Semitism, even though you as a person may have no problem at all with Jews, and you will be horrified to think that you had a problem with Jews. You you don't think like that. So this is a sort of complicated thing to to unravel. Do I think that there is no room even for argument with people who disagree with my view that only the Jews have the right to the land? Uh, No, I don't think there is no room for argument i would like to argue with them Uh, but i you know do i have disrespect for them i it makes me sad because i feel that they fall into one of these two categories either not knowing or coming at it from a in my view a distorted ideological perspective and i just think they're wrong and but i mean you know until fairly recently in my life i thought like that
0: Mm.
1: i thought like that uh, so I, you know, I I, I, I hear them.
0: So let, let's just go back to when you first moved to Israel. I know we're running out of time slightly, but when you first moved to Israel, um, how do you negotiate working here oh. in the British media with living there and going back and forth? Did you have to hide it?
1: Uh, I didn't advertise it. I mean, quite frankly, very few people would have believed that anybody could live in quite a such a peculiar way. As I was and I am living. I believed correctly that there would be an enormous amount of hostility and accusations immediately of dual loyalty. Um, and it took me a while to be brave enough to advertise it, to and I I took a, a policy decision. Hitherto I had just not said anything, and you know, many people knew. Uh, I wasn't sort of hiding in that. that, I mean, it's impossible to hide it. I
0: think you said to me once that somebody, uh, a producer promised to keep your secret at one point.
1: Well, that was the BBC. That was the BBC. Um, uh, Yes. As
0: if it would be devastating to your career if anybody found out that you lived in that awful place. He
1: knew. He knew. It it was apparent to me. He knew perfectly well um, the degree of venom at the BBC about this.
0: But now you're out and proud as living in Israel and you're successful and life seems to be fine
1: Mm -hmm. if crazy
0: is that is that is that right so does that say more about you does it say more about how society has moved on Uh, what what does it what does it say
1: below the line of the reader's thread it's vicious really vicious she has no right to speak about anything in Britain because now she is in Israel no right my entire life wiped out so people, you know, my colleagues, some of my colleagues, our colleagues in the media, some of them live in all kinds of places. They live in the south of France. They live in America. You know, technologically, you can do a lot uh, uh, without being uh, in Britain. Those people don't get this kind of treatment. OK, that's how it is. So I, I took the view after a while that it wasn't fair and it wasn't right for me not to say this out, out, outspokenly, to say what I was doing and so i t- i took that decision and i decided you know i would take what take what followed uh look i've made an entire career out of dying on every single possible hill simultaneously <laughs> so like this is just like one of the hills on yeah. which you know i choose to um to immolate myself. And I mean, it's was, the Hill of Jerusalem as well. The Hill it? of Jerusalem, yes, yes. They're, well, they're the Hill of Evil Council as far as... Uh, <laughs> so, you know, the positions I've taken over a vast number of topics have upset, offended, alienated, and cheesed off and brassed off uh, so many people uh, who have potentially had the uh, the power to affect my professional life that I really, I mean, I, you know, I, I, there's no point trying to work out, you know, which, which of them has done me the most damage.
0: Emily, you, you, as you've said, receive a lot of criticism and attack and perhaps more than most. Um, does that affect you?
1: If you prick me, do I not bleed? Uh, of course it affects me. Um, people have this assumption that, you know, because uh, I say stuff as I see it um, and I uh, give no quarter as people see it, um, that i'm not affected uh, they believe that i'm not really human um it affects me very badly uh i it upsets me a great deal because it's vicious it's unjust it's a bit frightening um and I really don't enjoy it I do not enjoy the cut and thrust i people you find don't this... seek to provoke it no on the contrary on the contrary I've always you know right from the get-go right from the time when I first offended people back at The Guardian, all I did was say what I thought was right, and then the world fell in on me. And, yeah, I dug in my heels, and I thought, right, they are not just wrong, but they are damagingly wrong, and I have to say that. And so I went on and on and on. I did not give ground. Um, But uh, it is extremely hurtful. But, you know, you learn to you learn to deal with it. Um, I wouldn't say I've developed a thicker skin. I would say my skin is as uh, thin as it ever was. But you learn to kind of park it in a way. And also, they started by calling me right-wing. And then I was very right-wing. And then I was ultra-right-wing. And then I was... Uh, a neo-Nazi and then I was a fascist and then I was a Zionist and then I was insane and then I was a neo-Nazi, Likudnik, Zionist, fascist, insane Jew. And once you got to that point, once they've called you all those things, you think to yourself, right, what are they going to call me now? And they kind of run out of the lexicon. There's no more. And you think, okay, and I'm still writing. And then it kind of gets a little bit easier to bear because you think they haven't won. I'm still here. And that is what has kept me going. Plus the fact that beyond these terrible things that are thrown at me, I have to say the thing that has really kept me going is the people who have written to me over the years and who I meet in the street. And this sounds terribly self-regarding, but it's really important to me. They write to me and they come up to me and they say, your writing means so much to me. I thought I was going mad. I thought I was the only one who thought like this. You have given me the strength to carry on. You have made me realise there are millions of people like me. What?" Ever you do, do not stop. Don't let them stop you. Now, as I say, that may sound rather self-regarding, but it is absolutely crucial because you then realise, and I realised this many years ago, that the noise and the venom and the the aggravation and the, and the the titanic noise coming at you the whole time, you are this, you are that. It's overwhelming. But then you realise that those people speak for a very, very small number of people. But out there, there are millions and millions who think like me. And one of the reasons why my opponents are so vicious and why they have to shut me down in their minds and why they have to shut down so many people with whom they find that they so profoundly disagree is that they are frightened they're frightened that they can't sustain the argument. They are frightened that there are so many millions who might think like that. And once you realize that, then your perspective changes and you become much more kind of balanced and your whole frame of, of thinking is much more focused upon all those good, decent, sensible, sane people who think broadly like me. And so all the people are making this tremendous noise, they're still there. They are still are very upsetting. They still can do you an enormous amount of professional damage and social damage, but you're able to park it.
0: Well, on, on that note, Melanie, <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much for coming in.
1: Not at all. Thank you so much for employing me. <laughs>
0: You've been listening to Let's Talk, the Jewish Chronicle podcast, sponsored by the Athena Advisors, with me, Jake Wallace-Simons, editor of the Jewish Chronicle. If you haven't subscribed, you can do so on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.